0: An intellectually honest founder will find their way through this maze of discovering what really works as a founder it's a process of discovery and if you're not intellectually honest you can be honest but you can be intellectually dishonest which means that i always tell everyone the truth but when somebody disproves my hypothesis or my ideas i don't agree with them and i don't believe them and that's like the death knell for a founder because that curiosity is extremely important.
1: Hello and welcome. I'm your host Pradesh Sanyal and you're listening to The 1% Project. Conversations that will help you understand how some of the smartest minds build, scale and operate new ideas and ventures. If you enjoy these conversations, do share and subscribe. next guest on the 1% project is Avril Bhatnagar, founder of A Junior VC Community and he is a junior VC at Venture Highway. Avril is a graduate of Indian Institute of Technology, Bombay and Indian Institute of Management, Ahmedabad. Avril's Quora responses have more than 30 million views and his startup essays have led to the creation of 20,000 members strong, A Junior VC Community and earned him 170,000 plus followers on LinkedIn. In this conversation, he talks about non-linear decision making, building a community, his view on Indian venture ecosystem, intellectual honesty, his observations about Amazon, Amul, and Haldiram. Hi Avril, welcome to the 1% Project.
0: Thanks Fitesh for having me, really looking forward to this. I am quite feeling impressed about myself being on this, seeing the previous folks who have been here. So thank you uh, for having me.
1: I'm a big fan and I'm sure 200,000 plus subscribers are a big fan of your essays and the work that you do. So definitely we all are looking forward to hearing from you and definitely I'm here to actually listen to you and learn. So let's start it off. I think the first thing I want to know is your non-linear decision-making process. What is it and how it has actually benefited you?
0: so i think it's a thing i coined on one of my conversations with someone and i realized that my decision making is non-linear but it's just a more jazzy way of saying that i think more first principles and i tend to think differently from the group generally linear decision making is when you go with consensus which is like hey you should be doing this and you go with the group which is like everyone else is doing this Right. And I've tended not to follow both in most cases. So for example, taking up a venture role very early on during my MBA, after my MBA was pretty nonlinear, I think. And I think that was like the first time I actually took like a very different consensus from, from other people, but if you really go back. The first time I actually took a non-linear decision was when I was preparing for the G and this was not a lot of people making that decision. So it was not group think or anything, but the consensus was that you should go to a CBSC college and study, and you'll be able to clear the G. And I realized that I can't go to school and prepare for J at the same time. So for me, what made sense was going to a college because in Maharashtra, I'm not sure if you're aware of how the structure is colleges tend to be. And I know whichever college professors are going to hear this, they're going to be like, I'm going to kill you. Attendance is not a big deal. So they don't really care. And I was like a Pune topper. And people were like, dude, you're crazy. Why are you going to a college? People with 80% go there and 97% people go to army public school. And I'm like, no. And So that was a non-consensus thing. And I think it played a very big part in me getting into IIT. Because if I had to go to college, I would have got stuck with studying in school i mean and just doing that work and i wouldn't have time to actually prepare for je then when i went to iit i picked physics which again was slightly non-linear people would pick up chemical or mechanical at my rank or take electrical or computer science in some other iit not iit bombay again i took physics because i felt it was what what i enjoyed and what I liked and I still do like it I'm just not pursuing a career in it and these non-linear decisions continued like I had a choice between going for a US MBA and doing an Indian MBA I took the Indian MBA although the US MBA was possible for me and everyone was like at that by that time it was all group thing there was no consensus it was like my batchmate people people of my profile what are they doing and they all want to go to the US and things like that. So I guess this process means that I don't care about what people think a lot. And that's, I think, a superpower for me. Uh, It also allows me to write online. And there's so many people who, many who think positively, but there are also many who think negatively and I'm pretty aware about it. And it allows me to think independently. So the decision-making generally, the non-linear decision-making, in my opinion, is just being very first principles and being independent and doing something that is relevant to your context. And what people end up doing is that they they don't know the other person's context. They just think that the decision that the other person made is correct for them without really importing the context, right? My context is never going to be the same as anyone else ever, like your context and my context will never be the same, even if you're making the same decision about the same thing at the same time, very different context. So. So I think um, that tends to look like it's really nonlinear, not the linear decision-making, but I think it's turned out pretty well. That's that's my summary and a few examples of nonlinear decisions.
1: Brilliant. You talk about decision-making and I'm now reading a very intriguing book, How to Decide, by this author who has also written How You Think in Bets. And she talks about this concept of, we usually correlate our outcome to our quality of decision. And outcomes are actually based on two main factors. One is luck and the other, other one is quality of decision, right? And if there is a positive outcome, then we think the, the decisions we made were great. And if there's a negative outcome, then we think the decisions we made are just crap, right? But actually they are not correlated because there are a number of factors that work towards an outcome. So it intrigues me now that I'm trying to improve how to think about my decision making process that every outcome which didn't go well was my decision making process good enough and something else impacted it. So I think this definitely rolls into the response you gave. Do you analyze your decisions? And I think this is a key part when you are also investing. And how do you analyze your decisions?
0: it's a good question i think that human beings we have this innate problem of analyzing our decisions like there are some decisions we take which we over analyze i mean like i'm sure like everyone who's married they are always running jokes about oh you're stuck with her forever you're stuck with him forever right it's a decision you took and, and there there is some merit to that joke because I'm sure every spouse is always analyzing whether they took that decision, not all the time, but pretty regularly. Right. And why I take that example is that the big decisions that you make in life, you're always analyzing them. So the question really is, how do you analyze them? Should you analyze them so much? Are they worth even analyzing? And I think the ones that. are i would say repeatable and the ones that you need to take on a regular basis those are the ones that are worth analyzing the like for example investing or similarly deciding where to put your marketing dollars or making a call on who to select in a football team they're regular decisions and you need frameworks right that's why frameworks are important you don't need to have a framework to decide who to get married to because that decision is once in your life, hopefully. So, and why I'm giving that example is because we tend to overanalyze that single one decision we made, which never actually required a framework. So frameworks are useful and reviewing your decisions are useful when you have to make a decision like that. Again, I'm not saying that A investment is the same as B investment, but the general outcome is you're looking for the same thing, like as an investor, you're looking for a return. So analyzing your decision is important where you're going to make a similar kind of decision again and again, which was the point I was making about marriage and same thing people do like, oh, this college and this thing that I did, changing jobs is a repeated decision you make. So it's good to have a framework there, things like that now how do you analyze decisions that should be reviewed again and again right or or, are made again and again i think from from an investment standpoint there are frameworks from let's say making career decisions there are frameworks i think you need to uh come up with and i quote this book by ray dalio called principles you should come up with principles for yourself and that's that's what i call the framework so you can have like f- for me for my career for example i have two principles that are very important for me first is i must be learning all the time I, there should never be any phase where i'm feeling like i'm not learning and the second is i greatly value my independence and being able to do something by myself autonomously so that means that I might not fit very well in a big organization. So as you would see, I've never worked in a big company. So these are my two principles. Over time, hopefully I think more principles will come, three or four, but I don't think they'll go beyond five. Similarly on your investments, you'll come up with a few principles. For example, I'll say that I care that the founder has to be really ambitious. The market has to be really big in the next five to 10 years, there must be crazy amount of customer love that's shown for their product. So I've given you three principles. I could come up with five or seven, but in general, like everyone will have a framework of five principles, right? And what you usually do is after you made the decision, you went with a hypothesis, right? So I took a job with the hypothesis that, Hey, I expected freedom. And I expected learning and then you evaluate that decision after some point of time when you decide that how I do it generally is that I will say I'll do it after a year, two years, three years, four years, whatever, right. For my job, I think like in four to five years for investments as well, I think in four to five years. So I generally, I'm not that kind of person who is like every six months thinking is this the right decision I made. I just park it because you take time. So. What i'm trying to do is answer the questions that i asked earlier when is the time to reevaluate your decision which other decisions you should reevaluate so you should decide a time frame when you will reevaluate that decision for investments i think it's more important to do it more regularly than your career because you're just an individual in your career and you can make those decisions change is very fast is that moving a company is much more difficult than moving a person so if i let's say want to decide to change my job i can do it much faster than changing the course of a company. So reevaluating your decisions in the company scenario is probably better if you do it on a more regular basis for your career longer. And then we can talk about other examples, but these are the two that I think are are important. You can do the same for relationships by the way as well. Like who do you want to build relationships with people? Like what are the two principles? For me, for example, I really value transparency as number one. Like in the person I will go with, I am looking for a really transparent person. And the second is I should be able to learn from this person. Again, that's something that's there at work as well. But in the relationships I build, we'll have two, three other principles. In summary, decision-making principles and frameworks are useful. When you have to make a similar kind of decision repeatedly, you should decide how regularly you want to make that evaluation of the decision and then just generally stick to it. So I think it's important and those help you tune your principles. So you're like, I went with these principles, they work for me. I'll double down on them. This principle doesn't seem to be working for me. Maybe it's the wrong one, things like that. And it's evolving. So today, maybe these two things are important. 10 years later, I don't know if they will be.
1: No, absolutely. Analyzing additions is definitely important, and they will evolve. And as you mentioned, Ray Dalio is one of the key principles is radical transparency. So the first time I actually read that, I found it difficult. And I think when I try to exercise it, also people and environment finds it difficult. So I think you need to bring and build an environment and people to that principle. But right. yeah, again, a big fan of Ray Dalio and the book. Moving on, I think this is interesting and intriguing. You started writing on Quora around 2015, landed having 30 million views, then started writing on LinkedIn, and then you went on to build this community, which is a junior VC, which is amazing. I'm a part of it. Great. A Thank big you. subscriber. So, and I see the activity on Slack. So for me, I think an underestimated amount or an effort that goes into building a community, I think it's a very mm. underrated, I would say ability, or people think Mm. it's very easy to build a community, which is not true. So I would start, I think a a successful community has a very specific purpose and it Mm. fills a certain white space or a need. So tell us what is the purpose of the community that you've built and what is the space that you are fitting into?
0: Right. The one line answer is it's democratizing startup conversations and that's the core of everything we do. i'll elaborate on that why i think that is required i started like my career in venture four years back and i've always seen myself as an outsider insider kind of person I'm, i'm not being an insider insider and i felt like there is so much richness in the experiences that happen in the startup ecosystem and they're not truly captured anywhere you the startup ecosystem is described in a very binary way it's either euphoria when a fundraise happens or high criticism when something bad happens. And there's, if you look at any startup conversation, it's not about the normal way of life, which is what the most interesting experiences are, right? Making those decisions about shipping a product or how to hire someone.
1: Yeah.
0: How did you start a company? And I think one conversation I had with... One of the founders who actually ended up starting a company, but I had this conversation before he was starting the company. He said, dude, I can't be like these unicorn founders. They are amazing. They are superheroes. And I'm like, do you know what they were like seven years back? And he's like, no. So that really got me thinking because hmm. nobody will focus on the early struggles. and. You know, if you actually talk to the startup founders, they're very transparent about it, but nobody asks them. Nobody says, hey, how was your first year when you had two people on your team, no money in the bank, and you were struggling to survive? And that story is there like for really a lot many founders who actually become very successful. My idea was that let's provide access to these conversations and stories in a more authentic way and that really has always been the goal when we when i was alone starting doing the newsletter it was the same when we started doing stories same concepts community podcast they're all trying to do the same thing right the core is that there are so many people who want access to these conversations they are either the ones that already exist are not completely focused on what really happens, they're always on the extremes. And there's no place to do it in an authentic way. So so we're just trying to solve that, essentially. I mean, but the one line is democratizing startup conversations, bring people together and discuss this particular thing. So this is the focus for us.
1: And what are your success KPIs? How do you know that this engagement or what are the KPIs that you look at saying that this mm. is definitely going the direction you want it to go?
0: Hmm. We actually started measuring NPS a few, I think, half a year back. And if I remember correctly, we we're at like 69 or 72 or some some very high number. Wow! But that aside, I think actions really tell you if something is working right. People might just rate you very high, but never use it so what we look at is subscriber growth number of hits to an article that we do we just do one article every two weeks so it's really low frequency so it's imperative that people open it and read it, it should be worth it then we look at average session durations our numbers are like really high going up to as long as 10 minutes per piece so for content, usually it's like less than a minute. So we are 10 times better. Subscribers, as I said, growth rate. And we measure KPIs for each product differently. For example, the podcast, we look at retention at halfway, for example, which is how many people stayed. And it's crazy. It's like 82%. It's insane. I mean, I never thought that people sit and with their earphones on 20 minutes down, listening to a founder who they've probably hearing for the first time. Similarly for the community, we look at weekly actives as a percentage of the total base, then for the concepts that we've done, we look at how many people are clicking on, because we can track, we have 17 concepts, how many people are clicking on the concepts, reading it. So I think it's a, it's a mix of engagement and user retention that we really focus on and the acquisition tends to follow. So our KPIs are all built around the retention and usage kind of metrics because they really show that something's working. And I'm just caveating, all of this is done by a team, which is fully part-time. Like they're literally spending a day a week at max and that too, not the whole day. So it's crazy to see this kind of outcome
1: how you structure and build these essays because now the team is big and I understand that I think one of the major roles you play in actually getting all the pieces together right Hmm. I would like to know that what are the other partners doing in this are they assigned Hmm. to a certain part of it once you have come up with a topic Hmm. is somebody looking Hmm. only at data somebody looking at the body so how do you Hmm. go about it
0: right so I think we've split the products by my colleagues, right? So mm. the podcast is owned by a couple of my colleagues, concepts are owned by a couple of my colleagues, community stories. So each of these are owned by a couple of my colleagues. We have design, tech, storytelling, et cetera, et cetera. So that's how we split roles internally, but the most like our anchor product is the stories. So what we generally do is we have a call once every two weeks, which is in the week between two editions, in the buildup to that conversation, which we have every Sunday, which is tomorrow, we will discuss a few topics and that's a really interesting conversation that, Oh, let's pick this up. Oh, this is trending Oh, you try this. So we come up with like four or five topics and we hash it out, debate it amongst other things. So in our conversation, we'll discuss what's happening on the community. What can we do next? What are the new products we can try? Should we expand to other geographies, areas, things like that? But the story making process is what I'll focus on because that's that's what I think you're asking. So we'll come up with topics and then we'll fix one. So by tomorrow we'll have decided that we want to do a topic. Like for th- this next edition, we actually decided five days back because we knew, okay, okay this is going to be interesting. So now once we decided the topic, three or four members of the team say that, Hey, I'm interested in writing this and how we structured the pieces is that there are nine sections and they follow a story flow. So there'll be the origin, the early success, the initial fundraising, what the business model is, why is this a big opportunity, their growth trajectory some issues I've faced, the future of the company, right? So we play it out like a actual story. Like you read any of the essays, you'll feel like you've been transported back to that particular time when the decision was being made by the founder. And once we've like decided these nine sections, this is going to be our flow, which is a story lining. We'll divide it amongst ourselves. So someone will pick up part one, two, someone pick up three, four. And so on and so forth. And it's not like one person will do data or someone will do research. Hmm. Everyone tends to at least at a high level, understand the company. Basically, what does it do? What's its model? Why did it start? Things like that. And then they'll pick up one of the nine sections, they'll pick up usually two. So the team pulls it together and we brainstorm, iterate, things like that usually by friday or saturday it's in decent shape draft shape and then i do the easiest job which is just cutting it down and pulling it all together i think now the we've come to such a stage where there's very limited editing needed from me because we've got the process and the playbook is in place so i tend to not spend a lot of time now editing. If I go back to the early days when I was writing, it's probably one tenth of the time now. Hmm. So, so then the editing is done. Then we have the newsletter. So we align on that and there's particular members of the team who take care of that. And then we link the article to the newsletter and we send it out. So that really is a process. There's no secret sauce to it. It's just that we've built it and I think the most important thing I've realized in this whole journey is that once you set the rhythm, it is very tough to break it somehow. Mm. Setting the rhythm is damn hard. Setting the rhythm is really difficult. Like we will do these AMAs once a week, we will do this once a week, but once the rhythm gets started, like we started a podcast and I was like super apprehensive about doing it in the beginning because I'd never done a podcast. And, and, we deliberated for five, six months before starting it. But now we have guests for the next, I think about half a year. So when we started, we were like, who's next, who's next. (laughs) And, and now it's like, Hey man, can't do this. Let's just take (laughs) an off for this week. So, so, so it's about setting the rhythm and that's the real hard part. And that's where I'm i'm usually most involved because once the rhythm is set then it kind of gets done on autopilot and we have a very helpful community by the way there are a lot of people who are helping us who are not part of the team technically but they're helping us with their feedback they're helping us with their time and it's it's very good It's, it's it's pretty humbling and it shows that we are when you're authentically doing something to help other people like there's no I would say I'm not getting any monetary upside or anything out of this. It's just my way of giving back. So people understand it, and and I think they appreciate that.
1: Do you build these essays with a conclusion in mind, or you look at all the research done and then you come to a conclusion? And the second is, I Mm -hmm. think, which is more key, which is how did you actually land up building this team?
0: (laughs) Yeah. So the I don't think we ever go with a conclusion in mind. Hmm. That never is the goal. We see how it evolves the story. We look for things that contradict our view. And then we try to build a view. And usually our view is always more often than not showing potential in the company. Right? We are not the guys who will dis a company or destroy it or make it look like crap. Because I think it's easier to criticize a startup than talk up its mm. potential. Because our 10 things happening in a company nine are wrong. They just, they're just getting screwed. Yeah. So So we don't go with a conclusion, generally. But what we try to do is we layer insights. And I think one of the most important exercises we do as a team is list down like at least 10 insights or 12 insights we had and those insights can also be like unknown facts like hidden gems that's also an insight for example for me one of the insights in the amul story that we did was that Vergis korean had to battle the poles and monopoly which i was not aware of and it has so many similarities with tech companies trying to battle big tech today It's, I'm not saying that big tech is exploitative, like the Coulson monopoly was, but the fact that Amul was a startup at one point of time was, Mm. was my big insight. When you see that, like, hey, this company is combating a big, because Amul for us has always been this massive organization. Yeah. But what was it when it started? So, so I think we look for insights. And then we layer the conclusion in the view on that. How did I build a team? It's a good question and it's happened very organically. I never forced it. I think there was one point of time while I was writing my newsletter, I was like, either I've got to reduce the frequency with which I do this yeah, or I need some help because I can't do it alone. Like my work was obviously becoming a lot more. I was getting involved on boards and things like that. And I actually did both. So reduce the frequency of the newsletter we reduced and we got the team and i was like very surprised on when i sent a newsletter saying that hey need help and 170 people applied it was crazy Wow. and that was at a base of when we were like not even thousand like i was like mm. just a thousand subscribers so it's 20 percent of the subscriber base so so we picked there were Three or four folks who came very close to the beginning and I was very grateful they picked me and trusted me and so we started as a small team of five people in the beginning including myself and and I always look at it as them entrusting me and the rest of the team with their aspirations Hmm. and how can we help them achieve what they're looking to achieve everyone's in this for their um own learning and there are personal Mm -hmm. incentives involved and i'm not stupid to say oh there's some charity going on it's it's not like that so you i think the most powerful thing is to understand what people really want and enable them and help them to do that i think one of the things that everyone on the team really enjoys is that they get to own something and then build it themselves. Mm-hmm. I'm, I'm a very principle slash culture kind of person versus hey, let's do this or let's do that. And once we are like aligned on the broad goals, then it's for the team to do it. And I, I just see myself as a cheerleader on the side, saying that is awesome. Let's just keep building. So, and then after that start, the team just kept getting built because people would keep reaching out and and we are quite selective as a group and the most important thing i as i mentioned was transparency is number one so this culture fit thing is like the most important thing because as you realize it's a part-time yeah. um,
1: needs a lot of commitment
0: needs a lot of commitment it cannot be something that you're like oh, i'm kind of doing it and to take time out of your job and do these things Yes. Yeah. It's a big deal. So I am very respectful of that and I am very grateful to the team. So I think we're in good shape and we we take it slow. We don't have any such aggressive growth ambitions and we need to return money to some investors. Yeah. It's, it's good. It's good. So we're a startup no, without think... all the pain.
1: All the without bells and pain. whistles.
0: Yes, correct.
1: <laughs> I think it's a genuinely... Great community and one of the examples in the recent startup community within India. I haven't seen this in a big way. Thank you. So I really am looking forward to at least contributing and learning and reading your essays. Let's get to venture and business. What are your initial views about the venture capital space in the Indian ecosystem?
0: Hmm. I mean, on this, I'm too young and too early in the game to... Gives a sweeping statement, so I, I'd say I'd like take ten years to at least say I know something. But I think my view very early on is that there's a lot to do, and there's a lot of room for growth, both on the uh, startup side as well as the investor side. And I and I call this ecosystem the startup ecosystem and not the VC ecosystem because it is the startups who define us and not the other way around. And I, I I feel like one of the things that that is improving is that there are more variety of teams that are being funded now. Initially, it was like really concentrated. I remember one of, I was having a conversation with one of the founders who had started a company in 2013 or 14. And he was like, Dude, there were just 30 people and we would all just meet each other at investor offices because <laughs> those are the only people raising money and those are the yeah. only people investing. So so there's a lot more width now along with depth and I think that should continue to happen. If a few companies take all the capital, innovation will get stifled and essentially our job is to identify innovators and support them. Hmm. So these are the Edison's and the Tesla's of our generation, right? Lot, lot, many of them and innovation doesn't necessarily have to mean like you build a bulb or discover or invent, uh, AC, DC, you can have a better business model as well. And I think India has so many basic problems that need to be solved because we're a growing country and so many aspirations to be met. I think that founders end up doing things that are phenomenal. For example, I don't see this highlighted a lot, but I, one of my friends was able to manage a COVID scare with his family entirely through some of the health tech startups.
1: Hmm.
0: And he was terrified because he could not go to the doctor in a city and well-to-do big city with 10 hours of waiting line as you realize cases are going up through the roof mm. and entirely teleconsulted i don't see this anywhere i mean i don't see the government saying wow what are these guys doing but he was telling me that without these startups i would have been and we would have been in really bad shape so mm. they are they are impacting lives and they're doing it in a way where systems and Structures in a country that is as young as ours cannot support it, especially because we are such a big country and health is such a important example because it's related to life and death, but there are also other infrastructures like logistics and we get our parcels at home. Uh, there are so many startups innovating there, so many startups in, innovating in education, so many startups innovating in food. And, and I, and I think that all these companies. Are just doing a phenomenal job and my view on the venture ecosystem is we should enable these companies and nudge them along and help them when they need to get help so my view of the venture ecosystem is that that this is a, how i think we should operate as investors
1: brilliant and i think you do say that investments are broadly in three buckets founder product and market and yes. do you think? that they are associated to the series of funding so what i mean is a founder lever investor is looking at a seed stage investment Mm. Mm. cycle do you think there's a Mm. correlation there
0: no so it's 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 a great question actually all those three things are looked at at every stage it's just that the, the stage you are in defines the risk that you're taking For example if you're very early on you're taking risk on everything like Hmm. market is unproven product is unproven team is unproven when you go to an a you can say with some conviction that potentially the product is not that much of a problem it is working there is some traction so the product risk reduces then you go to a b or a c like this team is able to execute and scale so the founder risk reduces and finally, when you have become like really big and it's still keeping on growing market risk is getting reduced, but the, all these three remain forever and their importance keeps going in a cycle. For example, when you've reached like a billion and a half, again, you'll be like, do we need to think of our business model in a different way? Do we need to expand? Do we need to add products Then you start thinking very different things, but it's always a mix of these three. And you're always working with these risks and Mm. at each stage these risks get reduced and then as you become bigger and bigger, they become very different kinds of risks, but fundamentally every investor will look at all these three. I just feel like the hardest stage on picking a good team in a good market with a good product is the earliest because there's no data and it's, there's all the risk, which is why the most upside is there for seed investors.
1: Yeah, and I think you had defined also how you evaluate a founder of the team and there was mm-hmm. one specific thing you mentioned which was intellectual honesty. Right? right. So can you can you define what that really means? Because honesty I get, right. but when you say, when you add intellectual honesty, how do right. you define that?
0: Right. So uh, one thing i learned is that Neither does the founding team know what will work. They have a hypothesis and the investor for sure doesn't know what will work. They are backing a hypothesis and and I'm very humble in admitting that the founder always should know much more than the investor. Otherwise it's, it's, a, it's a difficult situation. Hmm. And some of the biggest successes are companies which have change their approach to a market they call it the model and they call this thing the pivot i just think that it reminds me of that old hindi story which i think is ashoka and or chandragul one of them where mm-hmm. his mother is explaining that you don't break the roti from the center because it's the hottest you go from the edges so a startup is basically like the your market and they're trying to like enter into the market through different ways And then they find like one works, the others probably didn't. So that's a model, Mm. at least how I look at it visually. And it's not like a circle and it's not somebody entering a fort or something like that. It's, but it's a good visual example of how it works and you really don't know what will work that this is an opportunity and you are the team, but how do you get in and crack this market and founders who think that they know it are more likely to fail than succeed because like, honestly, nobody does. Everyone goes with a hypothesis and it's proved to some extent or disproved to some extent, and you need to always take the data and accept it for what it is and be honest about it. And I'll explain what intellectual honesty means
1: Hmm.
0: that I had an idea and it was disproved by data or through conversation or through something. And I accepted it honestly, that my idea was wrong or my approach was wrong. Intellectual honesty is that, and it's really powerful and really difficult. I myself don't think I'm 100% intellectually honest because it's this weird tangle of ego and you have the idea linked to your personality and you're like, if this idea sucks, it means I suck. And founders who are intellectually honest tend to really never have an ego and they're like, okay, this is not working. Let me try this. Let me try this. And they're so honest about their approach that they figure out what works. And it's always a process of discovery. You might be lucky in your first hit and you're like, fuck, this works. But after some time you'll be like, okay, this is not working. I need to figure something else out. So an intellectually honest founder will find their way through this maze of discovering what really works as a founder, it's a process of discovery. And if you're not intellectually honest, you can be honest, but you can be intellectually dishonest, which means that I always tell everyone the truth, but when somebody disproves my hypothesis or my ideas, I don't agree with them and I don't believe them. And that's like the death knell for a founder because that curiosity is extremely important.
1: I think this ties back to the fact of radical transparency. Whenever you are questioned and you need to analyze your position and agree or disagree with hard facts, how would you say that a company like Amazon is able to actually build its way into Bharat Mm
0: -hmm. versus
1: the indigenous companies like Swiggy and Zomato? Hmm.
0: I, the, my hypothesis, I don't know if it's true, I've never worked at Amazon, but this is just as an analyst, is that they have intellectual honesty as a process, hmm. as a company, right? And that intellectual honesty is translated into their mission, which is putting the customer first. They're like, if the customer wants this, that's the truth. Whatever you think or what I think, doesn't matter. This is intellectual honesty encapsulated. And they operate the organization in that manner that they are able to discover what works for a market in a very Amazon type way, which is why I said the process is intellectual honesty. So at the core level, if you talk to anybody who is potentially like a manager or a senior person in, at Amazon, their very first principle, they care about the customer and whatever is working for that market, they will push and make it happen, mm. right? They will never go with their set approach that Amazon US works like this, so Amazon India will also work like this. In fact, they have radically different ways of operating in India than the US, so many things. For example, the COD, they could have just said, we don't do it in the US but they do it in India. I'm not saying that they discovered it, but it's flexibility of an organization and it's in their DNA. I I mean, I, Swiggy as an example, I don't know if it is because I think they've also done a good job, but I'll just talk about Amazon because it's such a unique company. It's not scaling the same product everywhere. For example, WhatsApp or a Facebook or an Instagram, the same platform. I know it's their algorithms recommend things based on your taste, but the physical nature of Amazon makes it so different and such a different beast that I I really admire how they do this and they unlock value in every market and they've not won in every market, right? For example, in China, they failed in Southeast Asia, they failed But in India, they're doing pretty well. And I think it, it is because they've honed their processes and they have got this intellectual honesty and culture of putting the customer first, very deeply embedded into their teams. And I think that's why it works.
1: Do you think Indian startups are improvising or innovating?
0: How do you define improvising? They... What's your definition?
1: My, my definition is they look at what others are doing and implementing it into the I Indian see. ecosystem. Right, so right. I'll give an example. They, I think WeChat is an innovation in China, hmm. creating the whole super app concept. Right? Hmm. I haven't seen something which is very unique to India, which has scaled within India to, like, to almost right. 70% of the market and actually gone beyond.
0: Mm-hmm. Hmm. It's a good question. So I, I'll tell you what I think i I thought about this quite a bit. There are phases of innovation in a society or in our country, and we should not forget that China was literally an optimization machine, not very long back, maybe let's say 10, 15 years ago, what they were essentially doing is improvising at scale manufacturing, right? They were not doing anything new they were just doing it better and costlier and i don't even know if to, if it was correct for the correct way or the way i don't know all those things aside it was improvisation at scale and only after you improvise can you innovate hmm. you cannot innovate from day one if you don't have the resources right and i i don't recall the the exact source, but there are these four stages of technical innovation and China has reached stage three, India is not there yet, where they have started building their own tech, but they are still not at cutting edge like the US and you will start seeing shades of this happening in India as well. Maybe there were startups that were improvising in the first phase. But there are so many that I can point to now that are unique innovators. For example, when P T M started, I don't think any country had seen that at any scale. Potentially China, but definitely not the U.S. And as we enter the new decade, there'll be tons of examples. I think one that I really like is Postman in India. Hmm. They've built a gold standard product. It's nothing like it in software and that's a true innovation. So you need to improvise first as a society to build the capability to innovate because innovation is costly. It cannot happen overnight, right? Because so many things have been discovered. So many resources have been spent already. In fact, I, I mean, I was having this discussion with my professor and he said, the fact that big tech companies are so big allows them to innovate because they have the money to do it. Like Google cannot spend billions of dollars on DeepMind to figure out how proteins fold, which is unrelated to search if they didn't have that balance sheet. So there have to be big enough companies to innovate. And those companies probably are improvising at the beginning and that country is improvising. But as a society, I think we will, we'll start, we're already seeing pockets of innovation, most of us actually don't see what real innovation is happening, which is not at scale, could be at, Mm. could be at a local level, I would say like Amul, for example, was an innovation, the way they solved the milk problem has put India at number one from being a dairy staffed country. So there are pockets of excellence and innovation. And I think that this will continue to happen, but I, I firmly believe improvisation first then innovation it's absolutely fine
1: as well true that actually brings me to another thought that you had mentioned that investing into bottom-up businesses looking at the portfolios of bill and melinda gates when you think of such businesses the matrix that you look into them because they are very difficult Hmm. to scale because they are really Hmm. looking at markets which are more heterogeneous than homogeneous would you actually look at such businesses differently than compared to somebody which is coming from a, a top-down approach
0: hmm I actually don't know how to evaluate those kind of businesses and there are specific funds that are impact focused that do it the metrics that they're looking at tend to be slightly different because they're looking at more things than just economic returns but I think fundamentally every business which is for profit has the same rubrics, to be evaluated? Can it grow by itself? Is its cash flow good enough? How is the team shaping up? Is the market big enough? And I would ask these questions for, for anything and everything. I think the, the the ones that are actually trying to solve societal problems, I think entrepreneurship does solve societal problems. It's just not very direct employment Mm. is like the biggest panacea to everything like poverty education all that follows if someone's employed but if you're like solving for i want polio to be eradicated or things like that sometimes those don't have any return on investment even in 10 years Mm. but they could in 20 or 30 and there are very few balance sheets and very few investors who could tolerate that kind of yeah so you you don't have that to do it but if you're looking at pure economic returns generally the metrics are the same when the societal changes and indicators need to be improved which are much more difficult and very long term then you have to look at it with different metrics of which i am not aware what i can just think that there are a few metrics that are important
1: Sure. I think Jio, to me, is a bottom-up case because Mm -hmm. there the product quality or the brand equity is not a key factor. I think accessibility Mm -hmm. is. Yes, correct. So do you think that in a bottom-up case, product accessibility is a bigger factor than... Yes,
0: yes. 100%. You put it very well. I actually think that what has been solved in India and is my observation is that indian access has been solved which is why a lot of startups play on the dow mao but income and access to wealth has not Hmm. so that second part is where you build a business otherwise you just have a user base
1: yeah true and i think you talked about amol you have written about amol you have written about haldiram and these guys have definitely built a massive business and a successful business Um, correct. but you do talk about their brand equity quality and marketing which defies all the aspects of what in a modern day b-school is taught so Hmm. do these guys look at or analyze consumers and their needs differently
0: i think they are very intellectually honest again like this point of Intellectual honesty as a business, I think, is putting your customer, I mean, there's this code that says customer is God, they attributed to Gandhi, I don't know if you ever said it, but anyway, mm-hmm. customer is God. Person who's giving <laughs> you money should know his or her needs. And I think that they are just so honest and humble about the fact that the customer knows everything, that they'll put the customer in front of them and ask the customer what they want. And some people just don't do this basic thing and doing it at scale is a real hard nut to crack, which they have obviously cracked, which is why their brand has brands have so much equity. I don't know their, how they came up with these processes, but they have like really deep R and D divisions. They do customer dipsticks, they will do group testing, taste testing. The thing about food is that it works or it doesn't. <laughs> Someone yes. will like it' it's no it's not like twenty percent retention hmm. of Amul Paneer It's like yeah. people like it or they don't
1: they don't like it
0: yeah yeah, they don't like it or they like it. so a product will work or it will just fail they'll it'll never there'll never be a use case it's half and and I think the fact that they have to be so close to the customer allows them to be really honest. And you have to remember that these companies have been around for decades, hmm. which really helps. True. No venture business can get these kind of returns.
1: I think they are very customer centric, and they are, I think, solving the basic needs of the customer, specifically the Indian customer. We may think that bhujia that we eat from Haldiram is not a basic need, but if you ask a Gujarati it's for a basic them, need. No, exactly. Yeah, so I think a basic need for me
0: as well. I'm not a Gujarati,
1: but it is. There you go. <laughs> Just, <yeah. laughs> okay. In closing, I think I have two questions. One, are you leaving money and opportunity on the table from the decisions that you have made, given the kind of trajectory and traction that you've built over the years?
0: Have I left? What are the two things? Money or opportunity hmm. on the table. I've never optimized for money, so I don't care. Mm -hmm. And I don't think I've left any opportunity on the table. Yeah. That's my sense. I may be wrong, but that's my understanding. I've always optimized for learning opportunity. I'm not a monetarily driven guy. I think Uh, money is a byproduct. if you're, you have to create value to make money. If you're not creating value, you'll not make money.
1: It's fine. Brilliant. Now quick, three rapid-fire questions, one sentence sure. or one word. Your most favorite book?
0: <laughs> this is the <laughs> toughest question. <laughs> I don't have an answer for this. I don't know which one should I say because I've read so many. Hmm. I don't know. I don't have an answer for this one. Sorry. <laughs>
1: sure.
0: I'll give you three. I'll give you three. It's A Shoe Dog by... Phil Knight, Harry Potter series, and Alex Ferguson's biography. These are my three favorites.
1: Great. The hardest thing about your job? Saying no. Your most favorite superhero? (laughs) My dad. (laughs) Brilliant. Avera, it was a pleasure having you on the 1% Project. Thanks for your time.
0: Thank you, Pradesh.
1: You can find the show notes for this episode and every other episode on 1%.live. If you enjoyed this conversation, share it on social media and leave a review. See you next time.